0: I'm Heather Donaldson, and you're listening to The Road Less Traveled. Hi, Scott. Hi. My guest today is Los Angeles-based drummer Scott Sobel. Scott has had a variety of careers, including work as a freelance editor for projects including Playboy TV and Girls Gone Wild, among others, writing for Drumhead Magazine, and also work with Folsom Prism Inmates as part of the Inside Circle Foundation. He considers himself a happiness expert and challenges people to turn up joy and turn down depression using cognitive therapy techniques. So, Scott, this is quite a resume you have here. Um, Hmm. I kind of wanted to start from the beginning. You grew up in New York, right? Yes. And what was it like for you? How did you get into drumming? Was your family musical? What was what was your childhood like?
1: Uh boy, that's a loaded question. But um the family was musical only in that really that there was a great record collection. My parents were real into Broadway musicals and and various types of, of music of the day. And the, the closest they ever got to rock and roll was Pete Seeger and the Weavers. Mm-hmm. And that sort of thing. But uh, my brother m- wanting to know what was going on with the cool people was was buying rock records when they were coming out. I actually discovered the Beatles before he did. Um, but he turned me on to Cream. And once I heard Ginger Baker's drumming, I didn't even really know what I was hearing. I just was totally fascinated. The first Cream record had the Ginger Baker drum solo on it called Toad. And I heard that and I just couldn't stop listening to it. I was just fascinated by it. And that's that was that was the beginning of the end for me.
0: So were you drumming already or did that inspire you? No,
1: no, that that made me uh, that made me want to be a drummer. And then the the funny thing about it to me is that while I was obsessed with that sound of Ginger Baker drumming, a kid that I went to school with, his parents bought him a drum set, and when I stood in front of that thing in the same room with it, I just was mesmerized, and I felt like I had never seen anything more beautiful in my life. And I, that obsession with the with the gear itself is is no less today. I'm still a gear lunatic, and so it was the combination of Ginger Baker's the sounds Ginger Baker was making and the the feel of what he did, and then seeing a drum set ruined me.
0: Uh, and there was then no you go. Just begged your parents for one, and they.
1: Begged is the right word, yeah.
0: <laughs> and they were probably not looking forward to how loud the house was going to get.
1: <laughs> oh, no. They, it took a couple of years, I think, for them to acquiesce. They realized it wasn't going away, and it wasn't a passing yeah. interest. It was I was serious uh, about wanting it.
0: And so then eventually you moved to L.A. So when did that happen?
1: Or- that was many years later. That was 92. I got a gig here playing with Rick Dufay, who's... A brilliant, uh, phenomenal guitar player, uh, good singer and great songwriter. And he had played with Aerosmith for a little while. He was the replacement guitarist when Brad Whitford left the band after Joe Perry had left. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he never actually he, he recorded one song on the album Rockin' a Hard Place with them. But his only real work with them was touring. But he had an amazing solo album he recorded in England at the time that had never been officially released and he was looking to put a bit and I got lucky enough through uh the connections I have through that the Aerosmith world to get uh a call from him and and uh flew out and auditioned and got the gig and uh a month later was living in Los Angeles
0: and so you say the connections you had through the Aerosmith world what exactly do you mean by that
1: uh well the been, uh, been a huge fan since the first album and, and through a weird series of strange coincidences, got to, uh, got friendly with Joey Kramer's family. And uh, he's been in my life ever since. Um, and um, he's, he's sort of uh, my, my long lost brother from another mother <laughs> and uh, he's been incredibly influential and inspirational to me up to and including to this day, every time I sit down at the drums or something from him that, uh, makes him come to mind either. It's cause I'm playing on a piece of equipment he handed down to me or because of something musical that, you know, I do that. I know I got from him. He's, he's, there's a long list of drummers that i just consider my heroes, but he's sort of the godfather to me, mm-hmm. uh, he, after after I got the drum set and I was blown, you know listening to Ginger Baker obsessively, um, I didn't really know how to do what Ginger Baker was doing. But the first Aerosmith completely lit up my life and I I knew how to imitate what, what Joey did more than I knew how to imitate what Ginger Baker did. But it, it also just rhythmically uh, the beats and the ideas that Joey had, it was, it was, it spoke to my soul immediately. I, I became and still am a diehard fan of, of the band, but also, as I said, he's, he's been my drumming mentor and my, my professional mentor. I mean, I've, I've followed his lead and watched how he runs his career and he's just a stellar um, professional musician, second to none, in my opinion
0: mm-hmm.
1: as a player and as somebody, you know, in, in terms of his professional acumen
0: so did that other than the rick dufay um uh band project that you were involved in did that open up other doors for you were you involved in other bands that you were also passionate about and
1: um you mean connected to the through aerosmith or or? just
0: through drumming in la or in other you know one project begets the next i feel like
1: yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's been one long thread of, you know, one, I mean, uh, when I moved out to LA, I was playing in four bands in New York and I, there was, m- m- I was usually playing seven nights a week. And when I moved out here and I didn't know anybody it, that changed radically. And it took me a long time to get established in any way. And not that I'm, I'm at all a big, you know, busy guy in the drumming world in LA. I, I go from band to band and uh, it's very hard to find people that want to do the same things I want to do. And even harder to find people that take it seriously and treat it. Like I always say a band is a business and I'm a very good business partner Mm -hmm. and finding good business partners in the world of, of rock and R and B and funk bands has been a chore in LA. Uh, I had a lot more people I, I could rely on and that I knew were going to behave professionally in New York, but you know, the, the cliche about rock and roll, you know, lots of guys have substance abuse issues and lots of guys have <laughs> a responsibility and maturity issues. And I'm not saying I don't, I'm just saying it's finding that that perfect match between personalities to make a band click is an absolute miracle for anybody.
0: Yeah. Um, well, you have <clears throat> to not only like the music to be you know, to play it all the time, but you also have to like the people that you're going to be seen, you know, all the time in rehearsal.
1: Yeah. I mean, at this point, I've gotten I've been saying for a while, I don't really care if our politics are the same or if we're or if I like you as a person, I care if you're a good business partner, which to me means you don't bring your outside world into our world. Your your life is your own and people now more than ever. I mean, I I do play with some younger guys on occasion. And everybody thinks that what's happening in their life is an excuse for not doing what they were supposed to do. And that's, you know, to me, how long would that last at a job where you're being paid to, you know, to do things every, every day say, Oh, you know, I overslept or, Oh, you know, I didn't get, my wife didn't fix me a sandwich or whatever. It's, it's infuriating and it's, it's rampant. It's just a, a overall lack of professional responsibility that most people that you know, play music. It's that balance between being a really creative guy who's, you know, into an art form and also being a sensible, mature adult who who takes responsibility for his behavior. And And who's disciplined?
0: Because there's you know there's a lot of people out there that play, right? And and if you're gonna get anywhere, you really do have to be disciplined.
1: Yeah, agreed. Uh, that's I mean and I think that's that's you have to be disciplined as an individual to keep your craft sharp and you certainly have to be disciplined to function in a band and do your job well and um again that's the discipline to me that should be very simple stuff like showing up on time and having your parts learned and things like that which seems to be becoming a taller and taller order (laughs) Uh, people don't want to you know I'm, I'm a guy who, you know, I am confused by that because I can't wait for every opportunity I get to sit down and play on my own. Yeah. And there's guys that don't do any playing at all till they show up at rehearsal.
0: So I think to there's, me that's... there's nothing more infuriating than showing up to a rehearsal and somebody doesn't know the demo that you just sent them, you know, like, come on, guys. This is what yeah. And now it is.
1: Yeah. Well, and nowadays, being as old as I am, stuff that would never have flown for a second years ago, decades ago, is is the norm now. People show up for auditions without having learned any of the tracks that you and they think, you know, oh, can't we just jam? You know, and it's like
0: no. you just
1: showed me you just showed me how much work you're willing to do to get the gig. So that tells me something about, you know, who you're gonna be if you if you're in if you're in the band.
0: Right. So, right. I don't want to work
1: with that person, you know.
0: So speaking of discipline, you have developed a system, I guess for lack of a better uh description, called Turbocharge Your Drumming. Um it's yeah. a program that you've sort of developed. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it's uh it's embarrassingly and overly simple, but it's been a profound um discovery in my life that all grew out of me deciding I wanted to be able to play m- more ambidextrously. I was seeing drummers that I loved like Pat Torpy and Bunny Carlos and Carter Beaufort and obviously Simon Phillips um, and, and Cobham who when I watched them play and they were leading with their, their left hand at a righty kit. Um, I just, number one, I thought it looked cool as hell. hmm instead of the crossed over hand onto the hi-hat. And the guys that can, right, right. That's (laughs) if it doesn't come first, it comes a close second. Um, (laughs) I don't, I don't want to say that scratch that. Um, If you can look cool doing what you love, you're the luckiest of the lucky. But for me, it's all about how, what I'm able to do as a drummer. I don't, I long ago lost any, I, it's a long way to go at my age to even dream of looking cool. Mm -hmm. So, um, (laughs) you know, the fact of like Pat Torpy in particular, in particular was a completely ambidextrous drummer. He could groove and lead with either hand. He could do fills starting with either hand. He was, he was truly ambidextrous. And um, so I started working on that. And what I was discovering was I got to write an article about this program. I was lucky enough that Drumhead Magazine uh, let me do an article about it. And what I realized when when I was writing the article that anybody with half with any common sense, if they were trying to learn how to switch hands and lead with their non-dominant hand would start off with like the beginner level stuff. And instead I was taking the most complex linear grooves that I was working on righty and trying to learn them lefty. And what I realized was after a few minutes, you know, five, 10 minutes of working on something lefty and, you know, getting tired of it being sloppy and, and, and not even, I would go back to playing it righty just to, you know, sort of remember where the notes fall if they if I'm doing it perfectly well. And I would I realized I was playing it way way better than I'd ever played it in my life just from practicing it the other way, you know, with my non-dominant hand for a little while. Mm-hmm. So I realized on some level the, you're informing your brain of of this new way to be challenged. Um, And it's affecting the way you already know how to play the thing. So that became an obsession for me. And in the midst of that, for a whole bunch of many reasons, um, I got obsessed with um, playing. I mean, this started to become sort of a monster for me because I started playing with much lighter sticks when I was practicing. uh, Butch Norton, an amazing, phenomenal drummer out of Los Angeles who plays with Lucinda Williams and a whole bunch of people he gave me at one, I went and go to him for lessons and I hang out with him a lot. And He gave me a pair of very thin Timbali sticks, which I had no idea what to do with, mm-hmm. but I started playing around with them, just playing on my knee when I was watching TV with my wife and stuff. And I saw, wow, I'm starting to be able to control these over, you know, over the days I saw I was improving. So I started to use them at the drum set. And then when I would go back to use my much bigger, uh, heavier rock and roll sticks, i felt my control had improved my feel my time everything so it was this it's this idea of doing the opposite like so i started to really work this into my own practice routine where i played everything i was working on lefty and righty i played everything i was working on with my regular sticks and with a lighter a pair of lighter sticks i played everything i was working on with my heel up and and then my heel down on the bass drum, which is a very big difference for a way to play the bass drum. Mm-hmm. And it just it just became a whole sort of monster that I realized was a great um, platform for teaching. And so I, I ran an ad um, saying, you know, that I could I could take any drummer at any level and prove to him that I could improve his time, his feel and his chops or he wouldn't have to pay me for the lesson. And it was just a one-lesson offer. It wasn't like come to me for lessons every week. It was a one thing because I don't really want to take on a lot of students on a regular basis. Right. But um, you know, I asked students to show me one of their favorite sort of default grooves that they always mess around with when they're playing. And then I asked them to play it at half the speed. That was the other thing about slowing down as opposed to you're trying to learn how to play something at a particular BPM, uh, take that and slow it down radically you know so i would tell students play it at half the time and even guys that are great players uh couldn't could really struggled with that so it was that it was switching to lefty i would say now play it lefty and almost nobody could do that and then you know so i would throw this whole idea out of you know whatever your sticks are play with lighter and heavier ones than the ones you used to whatever your Your technique is for playing the bass drum, whether you're heel up or heel down, practice the other way. Practice with your non-dominant hand. And the better you get at doing the things in the way that you're not accustomed to, it radically improves the way you are accustomed to doing it.
0: Hmm.
1: I could talk all day about this because it's just been such a revelation to me and it's made such a, a, a wonderful difference in my experience as a drummer. To be able to, you know... uh, just to to finish just to just to feel much less of a limitation with my hands like if i if i come off a crash sometimes i'll go right back to the hat with my left hand now and maybe play the first measure or two of the figure lefty and not feel like oh i'm gonna go off the road here i better get back to playing righty it's become it's become almost natural to me i'm not anywhere near the point of being able to say i'm an amb- ambidextrous player i definitely am not but it's just it's improved my ability incredibly whether it's cool. made me a better drummer in the context of music or not is debatable but in terms of being able to move around the kit with with more you know fluidity and control and accuracy there's no question in my mind it's made me a way better drummer
0: well, if people want to hear more about that, they can look up your article, Turbocharger Drumming, in uh, Drumhead magazine, which brings me to another topic. Um, so you do write for Drumhead magazine, uh, which is the number one magazine in the U.S. and the U.K., and you wrote uh, Clyde Subblefield's biography as part of their Legends series. Um, I wondered yeah. if you could tell me a little bit about writing for Drumhead and that biography in
1: particular. Uh, well, it was in Legends Volume Two, and I just want to clarify that Drumhead is the number one selling drum magazine in oh, the yeah. U.S. and the U.K. Not that I wouldn't—I I would love it if it was the number <laughs> one selling magazine. The way things are going, it may end up that way.
0: Thank but, you uh, for the correction.
1: <laughs> I actually that fell into that as I've fallen into so much because I read uh, the—I saw an p- amazing photograph of Terry Bozio on a, on the cover of Drumhead magazine years ago. And I thought, great, an interview with Bozio. You don't see that very often. I'm going to grab that and I'll read it when I get to my studio. And so I pulled up to the parking space in front of my studio and I thought, you know, I'll just spend 10 minutes or so reading this article. Well, it was almost 30 pages long and it covered everything from the day Bozio picked up sticks to like last week and delved really deeply into his time with zappa and all these amazing uk all these incredible things i always wanted to know more about i was so blown away that when i was done i called jonathan mover in new york and i said look i'm in la i know a million drummers here you know i could send you the list everybody whose phone number email i have i'm in touch with a lot of heavyweight guys because i had i had done a 68 minutes sort of behind the music for Joey Kramer for his 50th birthday. And I'd interviewed around 50 uh, name guys in the drumming world. So I had contact with a lot of these guys and I gotten friendly with a few of them. And Pat was actually one of them, Pat Torpy. But so when I called Mover, I said, anything I can do for you on the West coast. And here's a list of the, I'm going to email you a list of the guys I know. And he said, when we talked again, he said, Oh, you know, Pat Torpy, we've been thinking about doing something on him. And I said, great. You know, he's an actually a friend. We get together, you know, on occasion for coffee or lunch and, you know, I I do see him. Mm -hmm. And it didn't happen actually till the Mr. Big reunion. And I think it was 2012 if I'm not, or yeah, it seems like it was 2012. Uh, He finally called me and said, look, you know, I know Mr. Big is is getting back together with the original lineup and they're going to tour. Maybe you'd like to do the thing on Pat now. So I took it on as just a It was more a labor of love because I think Pat's been one of the most criminally overlooked of the of the drummers that to me that are just in the on the God level. Like these are the gods of the instrument. Pat is one of them. And what I found when I started working on the article about him was that all these major guys that are also considered the gods, they see Pat that way. The general public doesn't know Pat is. But but the drummers who have been around a while who are the most respected guys, all adored pat and respected the hell out of him. So that's how it began was just me thinking this is going to be a one-time thing. And then they wanted to do Joey Kramer and Joey being a friend of mine, he said, he's not really a big interview guy, but he said, well, tell them I won't do it unless you do the interview. (laughs) I had to go to mover and say, look, here's, I got good news and bad news. Joey will do an interview, but I'll only do it if I do the interview. So Uh, that just my, my working relationship with Jonathan mover has been one of the most fulfilling and enjoyable I've ever had. And it's, it's, you know, uh, he, he has thrown some stuff to me and said, do you want to do this? And I come to him regularly and say, Hey, you know, I'd love to do an interview with this guy. And when he asked me to do, if I'd be interested in doing the Clyde Stubblefield piece, um, that last year that's actual writing. That's just not, you know, it's easy to do interviews with somebody you're obsessed with, you know, right. God, I'm sitting, down with a guy I've been listening to his music for 20, 30, 40 years, and I'm obsessed and I've had a million questions for him all my life. Now I get to sit down and ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, he can't say go away kid you bother me because we're doing it for the magazine. Right. So, um, uh, but to write the Clyde piece was, you know, that's journalism and it's, you know, it's prose. I had to really write and I've, I've written a few things in my life that um, were in that it's that same, you know, sort of style uh, as opposed to just question and answer. It was a written piece, but I did a ton of research and it, it became a real again, a real labor of love because he was re- he, he had a big impact on me uh, just you know, how funky he was. And this, you know, his use of the snare drum and the hi-hat were pretty revolutionary. Nobody had really played like that before him. So, uh, I, you know, I got to do the piece on him for legends volume two and, uh, it was an incredibly fulfilling project. And to get to talk to all the surviving members of James Brown's band, you know, um, Fred Wesley and Wee Ellis and Jabbo, you know, God bless him. And, he just passed away uh, just like a month ago. Um, but to be on the phone with those guys, Bootsy Collins, you know, all these amazing people and, and be able to pick their brain. For a James Brown freak, which is definitely what I am, it was uh, beyond belief. And, and to, you know, feel like, well, I'm doing this as, as a job. Like, it's like, a, this is work I'm doing. It was, I was just, it was a, a huge project, but I was in hog heaven the whole time.
0: Oh, yeah. It sounds like it's awesome to to do the biography of one of your heroes is kind of a dream.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and and, to and enter- then talk
0: to a bunch of other heroes at the same time.
1: Yeah. I have to pinch myself on a regular basis. I'm right in the middle of doing a big thing on on David Garibaldi and Tower of Power. And it's like I've I my joke about this is I always feel like a 13 year old girl. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I should be wearing a little dress and Bobby socks and saddle shoes whenever I talk to these guys. Cause I'm just like, I'm, I'm crawling out of my skin. I'm so excited.
0: Yeah. Awesome.
1: A lifelong fan. You know, I'm, I'm definitely Rick Dufay used to say to me, you're too much of a fan of everybody else. You need to be a bigger fan of yourself, which there's, I'm sure there's some merit to that, but I would say I'm, I'm never going to stop being, you know, an, a rabid fan of the stuff I love and the people that make the music I love.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm going to switch gears here for a little bit. Um, I just want to talk about, so as a musician, uh, oftentimes you have to find another way to make a living. And when you were living in L.A., you actually were working as a freelance editor. And that sort of uh, led you into the world of editing for Playboy TV and Girls Gone Wild. And I wondered if you could touch on that for a moment. How was that experience?
1: Uh sure. Um it uh it was a very strange and, and amazing period. Uh I edited on and off for 15 years. Um and still, you know, if I get the call to do something now, I would certainly look at what it was, but don't particularly want to go back into the world of adult entertainment again, but um it was I I was uh, when the band ended that I moved out here to play with um I needed a day job right away and a buddy of mine was a producer at playboy tv and told me they were looking for a runner and by being a runner i was in all the post facilities every day all day dropping stuff off and picking stuff up and it was a really great job it was fun as hell it was stressful but it was a lot of fun racing all over la and i could listen to music all day in the company van and um but because of getting to know all these people in the post houses i eventually got offered a job a much better paying job in one of their control rooms for the post facility. And I ended up managing that, that control room for, I think, two years, which was an insane, like 75 hour week job that nearly killed me. And I learned a lot. And in the process, I was learning a little bit about editing and one of their clients uh, was Playboy, which is how I knew them and ended up there. So I had constant contact with Playboy as well. And one thing led to an e- another, and I just I got some assistant editing gigs, and uh, and actually only did a handful of those before I was given a project to edit, and that that just took off from there. And I was doing a lot of freelance stuff for people that were connected to Playboy, and from Playboy I went to Girls Gone Wild for five years, and then back to Playboy for three years, but the the the. The five years of Girls Gone Wild is I'm always toying with the idea of writing a book about that because it was just a wild, truly a wild job. Uh, And, um, you know, anybody hearing this that knows anything about Joe Francis, he's he's got a really bad reputation. He did a lot of stuff that, you know. He's uh, I don't want to say anything bad about Joe because he treated me really, really fairly and really well. I saw him treat a lot of people. Uh, in ways that definitely were not that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, I feel like I owe him a lot. I mean, I, I bought a house with the money I was making there, you know.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: and he treated me really well and he appreciated my work. And I I um, really helped redesign the image of the company and made it much more of an upscale thing. Like it, it looked suddenly like they had real people putting their product together as opposed to just kids. And, um, it was real challenging. And again, like any great job, it could be really stressful, but it was, it was just insane too. I mean, I was one of the best crews of people I've ever worked with. And the guy I worked under was absolutely the best boss I've ever had. Um, but it became really insane. Joe was getting a lot of trouble with, with the federal government and getting lost, sued left, right, and sideways. And it became a place that uh, it became too uncomfortable to be there on a regular basis. And uh, it was a job I actually hated to leave.
0: <laughs> but you uh, had to.
1: <laughs> I, I just other things were happening. And I Playboy TV was way closer to home for me. I was way less of a commute to go to Playboy. And I got offered a good job there. So I, I left. And I left. I'm happy that I left on good terms. Like I said, that Joe, the owner, and that company as a whole was very good to me, whether it's a good Thing to have been involved with on an ethical, moral level is a whole nother conversation.
0: Yeah, that's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's um, the
1: adult podcast.
0: Exactly, the adult podcast. Um, I'm going to switch gears again. Um, you currently work for, um, I guess, a, an organization called the Inside Circle Foundation, and they work with uh, inmates at Folsom Prison uh to sort of well tell to, why don't you tell me about what you
1: do uh, i'd love to because i take it very seriously and i want to be crystal clear i don't work for them and my involvement with them has cooled a lot in the last few years but i've been involved with them since its inception in 2000 mm-hmm. and it grew out of a men's um uh, growth work experience called the new warrior training adventure weekend that is run by the mankind project and if anybody's interested in that it's mkp.org and they're all over the world and um, that experience of that weekend as goofy as the name is uh, it had a huge impact on me in my life It it made me a better man and some very key foundational ways and I was involved with that organization for around 10 years working staffing their weekends and holding circles at my house men's circles at my house regularly for for years and still sometimes do Um, and one of the guys who came through was uh, uh, an ex-con who uh, he and I developed a very close friendship and staffed weekends together. And he told me his fantasy was to bring something like that weekend inside the prison for the guys inside. And I said, absolutely. Count me in if you ever get that happening. And a year later, sure enough, he did. So that was the, the spring of 2000. We did the first training in uh, we call them trainings. That's really not the right word. It's a, it's a program. And it's really, as I told you, when we initially spoke, it's really about sitting down in a circle and telling the truth to each other, which is a tall order for anybody. Um, men are very guarded with each other, even in the best of circumstances. And um, man inside prison, it's the understatement of the year to say they're guarded with each other. They do not let down their guard easily. And to do work with them where you create a, what we call a safe container where it's safe to be yourself here and everything that happens in this, just like with a 12 step program, they say, everything that happens here stays here. Uh, it's, it's the, the, the work in to, to paraphrase Rob Albee, who I, who started this, the guy I mentioned, um, we're just there to create the space to, um, invite them in to a, a, what's a safe space to be themselves to take a hard look at their lives. Most of these guys, they're the most create courageous men I've ever met the men that choose to do this inside. Cause they're risking their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guys, there's guys that benefit greatly from the ongoing war inside prison and they don't want people coming in talking about making peace with each other mm-hmm. because the whole system runs on, on violence and, mm-hmm. and intimidation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the average person that thinks they know a lot about what goes on in prison. If you've not been to prison, you don't know near as much as you think you do. I can say that mm-hmm. um, what these, the lives these guys live is unimaginable. And, and for most of them, the childhood they had is unimaginable. I, uh, I think I said to you already, I, I would pay really good money to have a lot of the stories I've heard erased from my memory because it's their, their upbringings were so horrific. Most of them um, we're, we're, Uh, only qualified to go in and do this because we're men who have our own deep wounds and um, have been through our own dark night of the soul and we're willing to be honest about it, willing to be honest about our failings and our our blessings and be really open and modeling that has an impact on anybody that's, you know, you sit down with somebody that's deeply frank and honest, it has an impact on your feeling of, is it safe for me to do that? Mm And once these guys start talking about what happened to them as kids and how they – what were the the steps in their life that led to them being incarcerated, it may be the first time they've ever talked about these things openly in a way that isn't just sort of angrily blaming somebody when they're really taking responsibility for what happened to them and how they handled it.
0: And so – oh, sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But um, so you – Did You have done work with um, the Inside Circle Foundation, but you also do your own work where you consider yourself a happiness expert. Um, Would you tell me a little bit about your philosophy on happiness and depression and how to combat depression?
1: Well, uh, that's obviously, again, a a pretty loaded subject and a a topic that we could go on all day about, but I don't take it lightly at all. I've have had many people in my life that suffer deeply from depression. I went through major bouts of it in my life. And the last one I went through really almost killed me. I I was losing everything. Uh, My father was dying. We were losing the family home that I expected to retire to. Um, My mother was falling apart, dealing with my father's illness. My relationship with a woman I thought I'd be with for the rest of my life was ending after 17 years. We were losing the house we had bought and restored there was not a lot left to go wrong for me. And I was not, I was not keeping my shit together in the middle of it all really well. Um, I was falling apart and, um, angry and, uh, and ter- I'm sure terrified. I wasn't in touch with that. Cause men, men use anger to not have to face the sadness or fear they're in. Um, so I was just angry all the time. I was miserable. And I, I was definitely for for periods during it, I was unquestionably suicidal. And the way I got out of it all, it's kind of funny to me because it in a way it relates to my turbocharger drumming program in that just the idea of repetition and of doing the opposite uh, became a really big thing for me. And I realized, um, The the catalyst for me was I was living in in the room I'm standing in right now, actually a 10 by 10 practice room where my drums are. And my, this is my fortress of solitude as I call it. And, um, I was living in here. We'd lost the house. We had broken up, me and my girl. And, um, I'd moved in here because I didn't want to spend any money to get an apartment and I was licking my wounds and trying to figure out if I still had a life to live. And, um, I saw a book on a shelf at the Iliad, that great used bookstore on, I think it's on Lancashire mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the title of the book. And it was by, uh, by a guy who I'd re- read several of his books already, but the title of the book was you can't afford the luxury of a negative thought. And I, I, that really froze me and bells went off and I realized that, that that was the story of my life in that moment, that one more negative thought would be enough to push me over the edge and I would end it all. And I bought the book and took it home and just propped it up where I could see the cover of the book in my studio here. But I never read the book to this day, which amazes me because that book changed my life without reading it just by the title. Hmm. And so I started to do what I now call police my thought. And if I had a negative thought, which I already agreed with the book, I can't afford any more negative thoughts. I would dialogue with myself about it and say, um, thanks for sharing, but that thought, that idea that those words I just said in my head or out loud don't serve me. They don't help to get me where I want to go. They help to push me away from what I want. So I'm going to choose a different thought. So I would reframe what made me like, let's use locking my keys in the car. You know, there would be a string of, of insults inside of my head towards myself if I did something like locking my keys in the car, which most of us have done. Uh, and I was an unforgivable thing to me at that point. I, you, you know, you effing this, you dumb that, you know, all. And uh, I realized, well, that that's not gotten me that that way of thinking of processing things that are normal that happens. If if you process something with a lot of negative beliefs and a lot of negative languaging, as they say in the forum, um, then your things can only be what you say they are. If you say something sucks, then guess what? You know? have a lot of people in my life love life sucks life's tough you know it's like well if that's what you say is true that's going to be the experience you're going to live it's Mm -hmm. not just going to rain cash down on you if you say i'm fucking broke all the time Mm -hmm. sorry for it's okay to curse on here but it's
0: okay
1: um, (laughs) i've got a lot more to come then So it just became a a relationship with myself. I heard a a brilliant talk by a guy whose name I've long since forgotten. And he said, most people listen to themselves way too much and talk to themselves way too little. And I've always believed in the duality of, of our existence and that we're not just one thing. We're not just one person. We're many, we're faceted, you know, multifaceted individuals, And I started to really talk to myself and uh, not so much out loud, but in my head, if I had a thought that wasn't if it wasn't a thought that the person who loves me in the most in the world would say to me, I threw it out and I replaced it with something that was not denying what was going on. In the moment, like, let's go back to locking my keys in the car, lock my keys in the car, instead of self-abuse for two minutes before I actually did something about it, I'd say, all right, you know, what do we do now? What are the options? You know, I, and I would get really just pragmatic and focused on how to fix the problem I'd created instead of first making myself feel even more like shit for creating the problem. I think
0: that's really interesting because that's a very simple example. And obviously there are much worse negative thoughts that you could say to yourself. But I think that there are so many people that every day say these little tiny negative things to themselves that add up. Make you feel
1: terrible. Yes. And what I've discovered through sharing this stuff is that most of us have a vicious inner critic. I mean, vicious, unforgiving, cruel, and, my advice to everybody that I work with on this stuff is, if your bre- if your best friend would not say it to you, you shouldn't be saying it, or if you wouldn't say it to your best friend or to your child or to your spouse, you shouldn't be saying it to yourself. If, mm-hmm. it's, if it's not okay for you to speak to a loved one that way, why is it okay for you to speak to yourself that way? And it's very, I believe it's profoundly damaging in a subtle way that most of us walk around unconscious about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, And and through that process, when I was going through all this, when I was still doing it all by myself, I started to see a transformation happening and my inner critic was softening. Because I wasn't trying to kill him off. I was just I was acknowledging him. I was saying, hey, thanks for sharing. But that doesn't help me right now. So that part of you that wants to be heard that, you know, it's a good question for everybody to ask themselves, what part of myself is talking to me with such hatred, which with such disrespect? And um, that's a part of you, you know, it's in there. And if you, you can't kill a part of yourself off, you can only transform it. And I believe things are transformed profoundly through love and through acceptance and nurturing and caring. They're not transformed by trying to stomp them out.
0: Um, Right. No, definitely. I think that's a very good philosophy. We could all learn to, Practice self love a little bit more, especially in today's day and age where so many people seem to be, you know, so sad inside.
1: Totally agree with that. And the funny and really sad thing is just the term self love turns 90% of the people you'll talk to off. More men than women, but for the most part, everybody thinks that's a sort of a goofy, like self love, you know. What's that? What
0: is that? That's some hippie (laughs) thing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, and there's a lot of lot of smart stuff in the hippie, you know, ethos or whatever the right word would be, um, in the hippie paradigm. There's a lot of really smart stuff and it gets it gets warped because the image of the hippie is the stoner wearing love beads and who isn't connected to reality.
0: Right, but, right.
1: Uh, you know, that all the hippie thing all grew out of people not wanting to be live in a world with war. Right. And, racism and with, you know, all the shit that we're immersed in all the time. That's on the news every day. So there's some great stuff that can be gleaned from focusing on what the hippie culture was all about. But if it's just shot down by the cynicism, I heard Art Garfunkel years ago was asked something and he said, I'm not part of the cynical generation. And I thought, wow, that makes me even happier that I was born when I was because I did get a little taste of the flower power years. And I, too, am not part of the cynical generation. And it's really hard right now to not become part of
0: it. Oh yeah, yeah. You just have to turn off the news. Well, I'm gonna wrap. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, I said amen to that.
0: Amen (laughs) to that. I'm gonna wrap things up here, but um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to let people know where they can find you or um, the things that you're doing online.
1: Uh, you know, I I'm. To use the most inappropriate word of all, I'm an internet retard mm-hmm. and a technology bozo. I I'm still, you know, I'm a drummer. <laughs> I hit things with a piece of wood, and uh, that's I don't do anything online. Um, but I you mean, have an I,
0: Instagram, right?
1: I'm on Instagram and Facebook, and it's S O B O L. Everybody spells it E L, but it's O L. And uh I welcome contact from anybody about any of the things we've discussed. I love, I love meeting new people. I love talking about the things that are important to me, a couple of which we've obsessed on here. So yeah, absolutely. And awesome. if anybody wants to talk, you know, more in depth around a set of drums about my the turbocharge program, I'm always, always down for that.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the Road Less Traveled. And uh, I hope you have a great day.
1: Thank you, Heather. Same to you. And I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm I'm honored. And thanks for your time.
0: Thank you. you Take care. Bye. Bye. After we finished our conversation, Scott asked me to share more information on the Inside Circle. The Inside Circle is a charitable organization that helps prisoners and parolees heal from the inside. For more information or to donate, please visit InsideCircle.org.